0: Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading
1: attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. As lawyers, our role is to represent our clients through some of the most important, emotional, and high-stakes moments of their lives. In a way, we are stepping in as a form of emotional surrogate at times, worrying so that they don't have to. Today we'll be talking about some of the dangers that that kind of stress causes and a technique called mindfulness and how it may help. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Our guest today is John Kropp, a mindfulness expert, former attorney. John, welcome to Talks on Law. Thanks for having me, Joel. When we were preparing for this interview, one of the things uh, that I came across was your commitment to not only mindfulness, but you know, we think of lawyers as skilled speakers. You've taken times of your life to do the exact opposite.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you're talking about the silent retreats that I've done.
1: So tell me, what is a what is a silent retreat? What are you getting out of it in terms of mental health?
0: Hmm. Okay. So, you know, the basic premise of a silent retreat is that it's taking the time to focus more deeply on your meditation and mindfulness practice than you would be able to do in the sort of chaos and hustle bustle of daily life. So you sort of step away, you go somewhere quiet you know often a sort of meditation center or even
1: a monastery is this for a for a day or two or
0: well that depends so you know i've gone on uh, a series of increasingly long silent meditation retreats i started with a weekend retreat then i started doing week long retreats a two week retreat a month long retreat and then ultimately i ended up doing a seven month silent retreat you know when i but was that all-
1: was seven months no talking no talking to other people at least
0: yeah and and i know that's a a bananas thing to do <laughs> uh it was And i'll probably never get to do something like that again that length of time but it was you know very valuable and very transformative for me and that actually that seven month retreat was the one that immediately preceded my starting to share these mindfulness practices in the legal profession that
1: seven months it it took you to uh decide to transition from practicing law to teaching others
0: yeah you know it wasn't actually it wasn't actually my idea It was I only started doing it because a law school classmate of mine had reached out and saw that I was back. saw on Facebook that I was back from that retreat and he was at a law firm and he was dealing with stress and anxiety and all the stuff that lawyers inevitably deal with. And he reached out to me to see if I could share some of the stuff that I learned. And so we hopped on Skype. um, I shared some stuff and actually he was the one who encouraged me to start teaching this a little more widely. And I still kept practicing law. you know I was at my law firm for a year and a half doing this sort of thing, this teaching on the side before it eventually got too busy that I had to make too
1: switch. much of your time. Yeah. well, today we're talking about mindfulness. yeah. what exactly is mindfulness?
0: Oh, well, that's the million dollar question. and I think uh, you know people different people have their own pet definitions and people quibble over what's the exact best definition. But I think it's useful to uh, to just say that you could think of mindfulness, as a form of mental training or mental practice derived from ancient meditative techniques, but since validated pretty comprehensively by modern scientific research. So it's you know a way of working with your attention to become more aware moment to moment of your present moment
1: experience. So it's uh, perhaps a way of living in the moment or experiencing the moment more fully?
0: Absolutely, yeah. So there's, there's a, a famous book Called "Be Here Now," uh, that's a book about meditation, among other things. And to me, that is as concise an explanation <laughs> Three of my words: thoughts. "Be Here Now." That's it.
1: So I may have alluded to this a little in the intro, but as lawyers, our role is thinking of the future. Yeah. It's it's concentrating on what's coming next. It's being on top of all the details and the risks, and that's what we're being paid to do. Absolutely. So, it, in a sense, is. Law anathema to be here now.
0: yeah, it's a so it's a great question. And so I you know, I often have to point this out when I teach a workshop at you know a law firm or public defenders officer or wherever I'm teaching, because I'm talking so much about getting out of your head and into the present moment, not being so caught up in the mental stories of past and future that we compulsively engage with that I do find it's important to disclaim. This is not to say that mindfulness is anti-thinking, right? Or that you should never engage with the content of your thoughts. Obviously, that's ridiculous. <laughs> we have to think about the future. Not only do we have to think about the future and the past like any human, but as lawyers, we have to focus particularly on the things that can go wrong, the possible errors, the ambiguities in our argument, the, the weaknesses that could be exploited or that
1: we could exploit, right? So you can't tell a lawyer, you know, just stay positive.
0: No, we, we are embedded in an adversary system. Right. Even if you're a transactional attorney, there is this sense in which the pie isn't fully shareable. And so it's not about denying that reality, but it's about understanding that we should be able to put these hats on and take these hats off as they suit us. Right. So the contentiousness or the zealousness that we need to apply sometimes to advocate effectively for our clients, that's great. But then when it's time to leave the office and go be with your kids, you want to be able to take that off. Right. Or this tendency to spot errors, flaws, weaknesses, that is frankly what we are paid to do, you want to be able to set that aside because it's not necessarily a calming
1: or a peaceful mode to be in all the time. As we talk about mindfulness and we're going to talk more about techniques, yeah. we should be looking at the other side of the coin, which is stress. How it can have negative health consequences, but in some cases it can have positive consequences or it can be useful. Uh, at least in that moment.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And you'll sometimes hear people talk about this idea of eustress versus distress. So eustress is spelled E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, eustress. And that refers to the sort of positive stress that motivates us to do our work, be effective. You know, that feeling of if you've ever had a deadline coming up, but instead of feeling sort of flattened by the deadline or afraid, it just sort of brings a certain vigor (laughs) <laughs> to your work and a certain clarity yeah. it almost feels good sometimes
1: so you know we talk about stress sometimes and putting it in this this ancient atmosphere where you know maybe we're we're the hunter right and and we're feeling the stress you know maybe we'll talk about a positive experience maybe we're trying to catch an antelope or something yes and we're, we're just about to get there and your body's filled with hormones and and excitement and and maybe some of that is triggered by the stress
0: yes absolutely But it can get out of hand, right? Because we're not on the savanna anymore, right? And unfortunately, because of the way our brains evolved, we respond to social stressors, you know, uh, or occupational stressors, much the same way that we would respond to physical threats. Right? (laughs) Which means that having to take a deposition or having to do a client pitch can trigger the same fight or flight response as an animal attack, right? And that is not helpful, right? It is helpful if you are being chased by a saber-toothed tiger, but it's not helpful to sort of do our jobs effectively. And, And when it becomes excessive, then we're definitely getting into the realm of distress, what we normally think of as stress, right? The sort of stress that is unhelpful, that can be harmful, that at high levels causes things like stress headaches and indigestion and fatigue, or on the flip side, insomnia, right? All these physical manifestations
1: And, you know, we're not two doctors sitting down today. Maybe we'll we'll have a a doctor come for another conversation. Yeah. But there are studies that show that stress can cause inflammation in the body, Mm -hmm. that it can cause autoimmune responses.
0: Yes. And, you know, what I find, though, is that even when you lay out the sort of awful health consequences of stress, sometimes lawyers, I don't want to paint the profession with too broad a brush, but sometimes I find that lawyers will say something like, well, yeah, that's bad, but I'm okay with that. I'm willing to take that on as long as I can power through and get the work done, right? They sort of put the
1: work first. Mm. And to that, what or, I, I, or maybe we tell ourselves, you know, we, we handle stress well. I can handle stress.
0: Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I can train for this. It. Yeah. And so I do want to kind of say to any lawyers who feel that way, uh, no, you can't. Uh, <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it, but, you know, I think it's important to realize that high levels of stress aren't just bad for your health, but they're bad for your performance. So if what you care about is your ability to get your work done and be a great lawyer, you're not going to be able to do that. You know, High levels of stress
1: cause cognitive impairment too. So here we're talking about not that moment where the, the saber tooth tiger that you're mentioning or where you're on the hunt. This is more chronic stress where you're dealing with stress over time, perhaps in some type of a loop. Uh, or, you know, or playing through it in your mind, causing yourself more stress.
0: Yeah, and it does ebb and flow, of course, right? Because when you've got a filing coming up, then it spikes. Right after the filing, you might get a little bit of a breather. Often, not much of one. But yeah, it does be- become sort of the stress almost becomes the
1: background noise of your life. I take it right? you were a, a litigator in your past life. Yeah. Can you tell? Yeah. I mean, similar for you know, deal lawyers. If there's a big signing or a big closing, you're not expecting much sleep, and you're you're excited and stressed.
0: Yeah exactly and so i think it's important to understand that these high levels of stress are going to make you worse at your job your ability to spot details uh, your verbal filter all you know which keeps you from maybe saying or doing something impulsive when you're in a tense negotiation or conversation all these things start to falter right you get sloppier your if, work if suffers. you're not
1: managing it probably. if you're
0: not managing it effectively yeah
1: okay so is law at all different isn't it just Any high stakes job? I mean, I imagine the stress of a doctor or the stress of, uh, you know, someone in the military as being even higher than what lawyers are having to deal with.
0: Mm. So I don't want to say that lawyers are uniquely stressed or to suggest that other professions or fields of work are not, you know, extremely prone to stress. But there are some specific things that actually make uh, being a lawyer unique in the sources of its stress. So this actually comes from uh, a guy named Martin Seligman, Dr. Martin Seligman, I should give him his title. He was the founder of the field of positive psychology. And Seligman wrote an article about the unique causes of lawyer stress and unhappiness. And he listed (laughs) three specific things that are somewhat unique to lawyers that produce unhappiness and stress. So the first one that he talked about was what he called low decision latitude which basically means a lack of autonomy, a lack of control. You know, if you work at a law firm, for instance, or any sort of organization with a hierarchical structure, there is an extent to which you are not the captain of your own ship, right? You're not always deciding That's what work you're doing. That's
1: certainly the case as a new lawyer where you're, uh, you know, maybe the, the youngest person on the deal team, yep. the least uh, trusted person on the deal team, where, you know, what you're doing is maybe related to the bigger deal, but in a small way.
0: Yes. And it's also true for more senior lawyers, because even if you're a partner, that doesn't mean that your client can't send you an email at 11 p.m. on Friday night and they expect a response. And sometimes you got to give it on a pretty quick turnaround Oh,
1: So it's not just restrictions in the type of work or the type of things that you're able to do. It's when you get to do them and how quickly you have to do them.
0: Exactly. Just a sense of not being fully in control of what, when, and how you have to do what you do as part of your work. Mm. And that feeling of lack of control can cause stress and unhappiness. And what Seligman said is that it's particularly problematic when it's combined with high job pressure, which I think it goes without saying, lawyers have to deal with. The second one he referred to was what he referred to as uh, pessimism. And by this, he doesn't just mean the sort of glass half empty garden variety pessimism that we all sort of understand. He means, in addition to that, specifically this lawyerly tendency to spot flaws, spot weaknesses. Yeah, as we I were mean, talking about almost before.
1: indoctrinated pessimism, this pessimism by by years of training that we should be looking out not just what happens if this deal goes wonderfully, but how are we prepared if the worst happens?
0: Yes, and it's a super useful skill, but it is stressful to engage that faculty all the time. And I think Sullivan suggests in this paper that it may not just be that we are trained to do this, it may also be the case that people with a propensity toward that sort of thinking self-select hmm. into the legal profession.
1: So a chicken or egg question, are people who are slightly more uh, pessimistic or, or slightly more likely to see the negative possibilities, are they drawn to the law? Right. I doubt it.
0: I mean, either way, here we are, right? I like it.
1: Um, And then the third
0: one that Seligman referred to was another thing that we already touched on, which is the zero-sum nature of the adversary system and the contentiousness that is required to participate in that system. So these are things that are kind of specific, at least taken as a group, are specific to lawyers. Mm. So Seligman counseled cultivating a sort of mental flexibility in response to this. The idea is if you can cultivate the mental flexibility to engage these faculties when you need them right to error spot issue spot weakness spot when it's time to do that and then set that aside when you don't need that anymore you know to be zealous when that's what's called for and then leave that at the office door when you leave Hmm. that mental flexibility is going to be a solution maybe not a complete solution but it will help mitigate these issues. And mindfulness does, you know, studies indicate that mindfulness does cultivate cognitive flexibility. So it's totally in line with what Seligman was talking about.
1: So in a way, the issue isn't how much stress you're subjected to, it's how quickly you can let it go.
0: Yes and no. So I don't want to go too far down that road of it's not about what's going on in your environment or the stress that's being put on you. It's about how you handle it. That's a little dangerous because I don't want to absolve
1: Mm.
0: entirely legal employers and the legal system uh, from their responsibility in terms of the cultures
1: they create. Be here now. Three words. Yeah. In practice, what are we actually looking at?
0: It's very easy to say be here now, right? And uh, seems simple, but be here now is not our natural state, right? That's not how our minds naturally work. Our tendency is toward distraction. We are attracted to thoughts about the future, thoughts about the past. We get caught up in our heads, right? And it is not our default to settle into the present moment. That's why it takes training. So mindfulness is a sort of mode of mind. Yes, you could think of it as sort of a trait or a a characteristic, but it's also a form of practice, a form of training. And you need to train in it. If you want to do it effectively,
1: I find it it very interesting. And this this may be a, a separate conversation, but when we think of stress in the historical sense, whether it's being attacked or attacking, yeah, you know, back in uh, Neanderthal days, a lot of that was accompanied with high physical activity,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and then some of the coming down after that may have been what. What helped release some of the stress, whereas now we're getting the same stress without any of this physiological response that, that may be helping to cool the engines.
0: Hmm, that's an interesting idea. Though I, I would note that there is a physiological response, you know, when we experience stress. There is a stress response, a fight right, or flight right. response.
1: And then the release of, of of hormones and cortisol and
0: that's exactly it. Yeah. So you know your, your amygdala fires up, it sends a distress signal. To your hypothalamus which triggers a, a flood of hormones mostly i think cortisol and adrenaline though not exclusively so and then you get these physiological responses that we typically associate with
1: what are some of the physiological responses? i know one of them is apparently it, it slows your digestive
0: mm-hmm. processes yep uh and your heart rate accelerates your rate of breathing accelerates your skin flushes you start to sweat these are the physiological responses that everyone is familiar with because they're the classic experience of stress or anxiety and then meanwhile while all this stuff is happening the parts of your brain associated with rational thinking start to sort of go quiet (laughs) so you get this familiar experience where it feels like your body is going nuts and you also can't think straight right so it can be pretty dislocating and disorienting
1: so let's go back to how mindfulness can be of use Is is part of the benefit of mindfulness is it just breaking the cycle of chronic stress, or is it something unique and separate in and of itself?
0: So I think of it as a way to to deal more skillfully with these stress responses that come up. You're never going to be entirely free of stress, free of anxiety, but the way that we normally respond to these things tends, unfortunately, to feed them, right? Mm. We're not responding to them in a way that's productive. We're actually compounding and prolonging our stress and anxiety through maladaptive Instinctual responses Hmm. to them
1: or undisciplined responses. sometimes. Yeah.
0: And so it requires a little bit of discipline, a little bit of training. And that's where mindfulness practice comes in, where you learn uh, to be, first of all, more aware of the subtle signs of stress and anxiety and so forth arising in the body and in the mind so that you can catch the stress when it's baby stress so that you can catch anxiety or even anger when it's baby anxiety, baby anger, before you're completely bowled over Hmm. by it. And then you now have tools to deal with it a little more skillfully rather than um, reacting in a way that tends to feed it.
1: Okay, so you used to be a litigator. Imagine a scenario, you stand up in court, you make your clients perfectly crafted argument. You have the law on your side and the judge turns to you and says, overruled, old, old john might have let that run away let that stress build continue to think about it what would you do now how would you employ a mindfulness approach Hmm.
0: yeah well old john might have said something which obviously would have been really bad
1: right that's ridiculous
0: yeah or or, your honor you know this is I, i i whatever i said would not have been modulated right wouldn't have been skillful it would have been a little bit impulsive which is not really our job so what would i do differently now Well, one is even without having to do some special mindfulness technique in that moment, because of my mindfulness practice, there would be a little bit more space around the arising of this emotion and a feeling of having a little bit more time to decide what to do with that emotion. So the anger comes up, there's a pause, and I get to sort of ask myself, well, what do I want to do with that anger? Do I want to act out of that anger right now? Or do I want to sort of let it live out its little life cycle and spin itself out and then do it? It's almost
1: thing? like you're, you're, you're giving a perspective on your human experience. There's there's a, a third party who's watching and saying, oh, this is happening to you now. That's right.
0: Yeah. There's a there's a feeling of being a witness to your own thoughts and emotions. And so one thing I like to talk about in my programs is how when you engage what you might call mindful awareness, you gain the ability to watch your thoughts and your emotions arising and passing in the space of the mind, coming and going, coming and going, without immediately getting sucked in, right? because that is our natural reflex. A thought comes up, an emotion comes up, we're sucked in, and we live within that thought, mm. within that emotion, and then we act on the basis of that. And with mindfulness practice, you develop this ability to step back, have a little bit of healthy, you might call it healthy distance. I like to think about it as a little bit of space around it. A little bit of time to decide what to do
1: we're going to talk uh, about some of the techniques in mindfulness but maybe now's a good time for the skeptics the pessimists and yeah, yeah. audience to talk about some of the the data behind mindfulness and what hard-nosed science is saying about it mm-hmm. so
0: there is a ton of research at this point and some of the studies are better than others but there are some pretty good studies and more importantly, some pretty decent meta-analyses that show that mindfulness practice, even what you might call moderate doses, where you're practicing just a little bit a day, can reduce stress, can reduce anxiety. It can even apparently lower elevated blood pressure. Hmm. It's been shown to be good for physical health in a variety of ways. And there was a study, uh, I forget if it was a study or a series of studies, but it came from Dr. Sarah Lazar, who's at Harvard, and she and her colleagues found that practicing mindfulness in sort of moderate amounts each day for just eight weeks was enough to cause measurable physical changes in the brain,
1: particularly in the prefrontal cortex. So we're cortex. not just talking about effects on, on blood pressure or you know he, physical health in the body, but also in the way the brain's functioning. That's right.
0: And there's a fellow named Richie Davidson, Dr. Richard Davidson at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, whose whole thing is he puts very advanced mindfulness practitioners and meditators into brain scanning, you know, very sophisticated brain scanning apparatus and sees how their brain waves are different. Interesting. What he'll do is in his studies, he'll bring in newer practitioners who've been practicing for a few weeks. Maybe they've taken an eight week course and then he'll bring in Buddhist monks with maybe tens of thousands of hours of of practice and you can really see very clear differences. The good news is that there are differences, substantial differences between the brains of the eight-week practitioners and brains of never practitioners.
1: So uh, a noob like myself, uh, I, could even, I could even see some results after a few weeks.
0: That's exactly right. So noobs get benefit, and then the sort of weirdos like me, or you know, who, who do crazy amounts of practice, at least according to you know, these studies, the benefits keep coming.
1: Why don't we talk about some some techniques that you see as particularly powerful, knowing that our viewers tend to be very busy, very uh, driven professionals.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the classic practice is to bring your attention to your breath.
1: So why is it that breathing is so associated with mindfulness?
0: Mm. It's not the only, what you might call, focus object for this sort of practice. There are classically dozens of objects that were given as possible things to use as the basis for this sort of meditation practice.
1: Like a walking meditation.
0: Well, yeah, and and in fact, we can talk about that later if you want me to give the basic instructions of walking meditation. But no, there are actually many, many forms of meditation. So, you know, 2,500 years ago, people were maybe more like 1,500 years ago, whatever.
1: There, Before we were born.
0: Yes, long ago. People meditated on colored discs. You know, they would, they would uh, meditate on visual objects. You know, in some traditions, folks meditate on a candle flame. There are mantras, which are sort of uh, phrases that are repeated mm. mentally. So there are all sorts of things that you can use as an anchor for your attention in meditation. Now, why is the breath the classical one? Well, there are a couple of advantages to the breath. One is you have to carry around your colored disc. You don't have to carry around the breath, right? It's always with you. The other thing is that the breath changes with your state of mind. So as you practice meditation more and your mind becomes more subtle, sharper, clearer, the breath becomes more subtle, quieter, shallower. And so in a way, it's almost like the difficulty rating of the meditation practice is self-modulating. Because as you get more capable of discerning subtler sensations, the breath continues to challenge you by becoming subtler. Interesting.
1: So not only is breath a tool, but it's also something that you could be monitoring as an indicator of where your state is.
0: Yes, it's a barometer
1: of sorts. And,
0: And also when you get, if you're agitated or anxious or stressed, your breath will change. And that goes two ways. It also turns out that if you slow the rhythm of your breathing, that activates the parasympathetic nervous system and changes your mental state, emotional state too. So there's all sorts of interesting stuff so bound up in the breath.
1: It can be a cause or the effect.
0: yeah. So this is why I think the breath has become so central in so many different meditative traditions.
1: So I guess if you're doing mindfulness for for beginners, yeah, uh, maybe you could take us through a quick a quick exercise.
0: Yes, absolutely. So the first thing to understand is that this is a form of attentional training. We're working with our faculty of attention to bring ourselves into the present moment, bring ourselves out of our heads a little bit. And you could think of attention as like a spotlight that you can aim, right? And wherever you aim that spotlight of attention, that's going to determine what stands out in your awareness. So right now you have one foot on the floor. If I asked you to bring your attention to the sensation of contact with the floor, there it is standing out, right? Yeah. It wasn't standing out before, even though it was there, it was sort of unnoticed because your attention wasn't
1: on it. So I'm thinking about my left foot. I'm feeling the pressure on the bottom of my foot. Yeah. I may want to look at it.
0: Right. but you, And you don't even need to think about it. You just feel the sensation, mm. right? Your attention is there. That sensation was there the entire time, but it wasn't really relevant to anything we were talking about. Mm. So it was in the background along with a bunch of other things that weren't relevant, right? But then I ask you to bring your attention to that sensation. There it is standing out, right? So. This is how we can sort of move our attention and put it where we want it. You know, if I ask you to bring your attention to your butt on the chair, there it is, right? There we it can, is. We can move that spotlight of attention. So what we're going to do in this practice is you're going to bring that spotlight of attention to a specific sensation, and that is the sensation of air passing through your nostrils as you breathe.
1: Maybe I'll 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 improve my posture. Oh, yeah, do your thing. Okay.
0: So you can actually physically feel the air brush past the entranceway to your nose as you breathe in and out, right? It's a physical, tactile sensation. And if you're having trouble finding it, by the way, it's okay to to sort of breathe more sharply, like to just zero in on it, to find it. Right. And then you can go back to breathing normally. So here's what we're going to do. This is the practice. It's really simple. You're just going to bring your attention to that touch of the breath at the nostrils, form a gentle intention to just remain there and observe the flow of sensations that you
1: feel at that spot as you breathe. So my intention is essentially no intention. It's just experience the moment.
0: Well, yeah, but that is an intention, right? Because without that intention, you'll be daydreaming, you'll be thinking <laughs> about what you have to do later, you'll be-
1: Wondering um, about the audio quality. Exactly. Is camera three in focus?
0: Wondering when you could have John back for the follow-up
1: <laughs> because- it's just Absolutely. Incredible.
0: But um, But right, so it does require intention to stabilize your attention right so that's what we're doing here we're just forming an intention to rest our attention right here and okay. just observe that flow of sensations you don't have to intentionally change your breathing to make it longer slower deeper louder just let your breathing happen however it's happening just let it find its own rhythm now it might change on its own because you're doing this sort of weird new thing <laughs> right so you might find that the rhythm of your breathing changes that's okay you don't have to worry about that but I'm just letting you know that you don't need to intentionally control your breathing. So sometimes people feel like they need to go.
1: Maybe we're used to what we see in the videos or yeah. the end of a yoga class mm-hmm. or, or some you know, Buddhist monk that we've seen a documentary about. Sure.
0: And there are practices of breath control, but that's something else. This isn't a breath practice. It's an attentional practice. That just happens to use
1: the breath as an anchor so just from that moment when i was i was feeling the air come Mm -hmm. into my nose and focusing on it what was that what was that accomplishing
0: well it's accomplishing a couple of things so one is that you are working out your attentional muscle right every time you're you deliberately direct your attention to something and intend for it to stay there you are training your faculty of attention you are learning to put your attention where you want it and not have it flit off into the future, Hmm. flit off into the past, right? That's one thing. So what's gonna happen probably pretty quickly is your attention is going to wander off to something else, right? It's gonna wander to a sensation in your body or a sound in the background or a thought.
1: What am I doing later? Where am I having dinner?
0: Exactly, yeah. And so when this happens, people often think that they've messed something up,
1: right? Or that they're being
0: a bad meditator. And it's really useful to understand that none of that is true, okay? That this wandering of attention is inevitable. It is part of the process and it's kind of what's supposed to happen. So nothing is going wrong here. But
1: we should be mindful of that part of the process too.
0: That's right, because all you do when your attention wanders like that is you just notice that, right? That's what it is to be mindful of something. You just notice, ah, my attention has wandered off. And now that I notice that, all I'm gonna do is gently escort my attention back to the breath at the nostrils And just begin again reform that gentle intention to just watch the flow of sensations at that spot to go back to your question what is this accomplishing you're developing two faculties developing a few faculties but the the two big ones are your ability your stability of attention right this ability to put your attention where you want it and not have it immediately wander off and then you're also developing this sort of mindful awareness of where is my attention right now? Am I with the breath or have I wandered off? Because at first what you're going to notice is your attention's going to wander off and you're not even going to realize that it's happened. And you're just going to think about lunch or you're going to think about a matter that you're working on or whatever the case may be. And then maybe only 30 seconds or a minute later, do you snap out of it and remember, oh yeah, the breath, right, right, <laughs> right. And then you bring yourself back. And that is the practice. It is a series of wanderings, noticings, and returns it is a series of getting distracted recognizing the presence of distraction that is the magic moment and then bringing yourself
1: back that's what it's going to look like that's helpful for someone like me who's tried meditation and thought wow it's so hard to it's so hard, hard to control my mind like it's a muscle and do nothing but one thing at a time yes
0: why can't i clear my mind i must be a bad meditator i cannot tell you how often i hear that and it's just an unfortunate and widespread misconception that if your mind is wandering, if your attention is getting pulled away, if there are thoughts and other things going on in your head, then you're not doing it right. And that's not true. You are doing it exactly right. All that stuff is going to be there. Distraction is going to happen. And every time you notice that distraction and bring yourself back, you should be happy that that happened because you just did a rep. <laughs> you just did a rep of the attention. muscle.
1: And one thing that lawyers are good at, it's discipline and putting together protocols. So have you found that lawyers as students are particularly challenging or, or are naturals?
0: No, I, I think that they have strengths and weaknesses as, again, speaking very broadly, they have a number of strengths. One, as you said, they're disciplined, right? So if they commit to the practice, they will be tenacious. They will really work hard to, to cultivate a daily practice, to stick with it. They don't give up easily which is really wonderful
1: we're used to doing things that are more tedious than this true enough uh
0: which mindfulness practice helps with by the way because it helps your ability to sustain your focus on something even if let's just keep it real what you're looking at is kind of
1: boring right (laughs) i've actually heard uh i've heard from a, a corporate attorney that she enjoys by the way she is brilliant and sophisticated and can do you know, the most high-end aspects of the deal, but she said she enjoys, almost in a mindfulness way, going through and looking for uh, typos in in whether the font is wrong or whether there's the spacing issues. Yeah. But just, it, it's sort of like a mindless or a way to kind of clear her mind from the more important things.
0: Yeah, uh, because you have to be sort of tuned in Right, you have to be very present to do that. You can't sort of zonk out uh, and be foggy to do that. So it requires a large Some amount of, level sort of, of present focus. moment yeah. focus, but it's also kind of engaging. right? The breath is more boring than than even that. <laughs> right? It's almost a little gamified to see like, oh, how many little mistakes can I spot? Right, That sort of line editing.
1: This is Helvetica and we don't use Helvetica. We only use Uh, Times New Roman
0: yeah that period was outside the parentheses when it should really be inside the parentheses in this particular instance that sort of thing right but the breath is actually more boring than that and there's a reason we use a boring object like the breath on purpose because if the object itself is very engaging then you're not really using your attentional muscle at all to stay focused on it right it would be very easy to engage your attention on an episode of Breaking Bad or something, exactly. right?
1: That's easy. Whatever so, your, your binge-worthy Netflix show is. Yeah,
0: so people have said to me, oh, you know, I find it easier to focus my attention on this or that or a piece of music. Can I use that instead? And my response is generally, well, do what you want, you know, but my recommendation would be that the fact that you find the breath a little more challenging because it's not inherently engaging hmm. is reason, particular reason to use that, actually. If you want to train then objects like the breath are fantastic. So people will say to me things like, and by the way, these are totally valid things to say, You know, I find that running is my mindfulness practice, or mm. crochet is my mindfulness practice, or things like that. You know, It really makes me very present. I don't get caught up in my thoughts. Am I sort of meditating? And to that I say yes and no, because it is bringing you into a mindful state. It is, that you're experiencing mindfulness in that moment the activity is doing a lot of
1: the work, right? So oh, interesting, so maybe the crochet is, is closer to this, this uh, partner's um, topography uh, hunts, whereas yeah. we're looking for something more basic in terms of mindfulness training.
0: Right, yeah, I, so I used to do a, a martial art called capoeira, a Brazilian martial art, and uh, what I would find is that when I was in class training and you know fighting and doing whatever we were doing in capoeira, my mind would be laser focused on the present moment my mind would feel so crisp and clean and mindful
1: but if you weren't you might catch a heel to your face well that's
0: true and then as, exactly and then as soon as i left back to my old self right back to the torrent of you know thoughts about the past thoughts about the future and getting sort of lost in that because what mindfulness practice does is the idea is that feeling that i had in capoeira that feeling that you have while you're editing your document or crocheting or surfing or whatever it is Imagine if you feel that way while you're just walking down the street. Imagine if you feel that way while you're doing your taxes. In other words, you don't need some special activity to elicit that mode of being. It's just accessible to you. It becomes more and more your default, right? So that is why we practice. That is why we train so that your base level of mindfulness, when you're not doing this activity that is sort of your mindfulness practice, so that it's there for you, even in those more mundane Moments.
1: All right, a break for the lawyers listening who want CLE credit for this interview. The code for this interview is all sevens, five sevens. That's seven, 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 seven. And now back to the interview. Let's talk about law school. Yeah, it's. You know, maybe as a lawyer, I have my own biases, um, having only attended my own graduate school programs, but it seems almost uniquely stress-filled. And when you ask law students about their law school experience, there's almost inevitably a complaint that is almost like a brag. I have so much to do, I'm so, I'm working so hard. Yeah. It seems like fertile ground for for mindfulness training. Are you teaching at law schools as well?
0: Yeah, actually more and more, which is great. Um, I've taught at a few places. I, I was fortunate enough to go do some programs at Harvard Law School and Yale Law School. So there seems to be growing <laughs> interest. And you're absolutely right. If I can if I can teach this to folks before they get into law practice, obviously that's better, right? Than having than being in the thick of it and already dealing with all this difficult stress, anxiety, burnout and so forth and then having to learn these practices in the midst of it which is yeah, most of what I do. I mean I, I guess do, that's but,
1: similar to what, you know, we've had conversations about addiction and alcoholism with other experts and they point to law school as perhaps the right moment to come in and start a healthy pattern before these individuals are actually practicing.
0: For sure. And it's it's kind of interesting because there's a sort of weird trajectory where when I teach law students they're very receptive because they're so stressed. <laughs> and then when I teach first year associates, they are receptive, but there's a sense in which they don't know what they're in for yet. You know, so they're they're at a fresh start at something new, they're excited, they're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And then when I teach mid-level associates or senior associates or partners, they're they're back to being like, <laughs> "Okay, what have you got for me because yeah. I need something." You know?
1: Yeah, I think there's there's also a sort of growth curve in your ability to take on responsibility. In law school, you think, how could I possibly be more busy? And then as a second or third year associate, you think, how could I have thought I was busy before?
0: Yeah, and as you said, there is, not just for law students, which you mentioned, but among lawyers too, maybe even more so, there is sometimes a perverse pride Hmm. in being stressed. It's a badge of honor.
1: I mean, how many people uh, would tell you how few hours they slept uh, trying to outdo you. Mm-hmm. Well, I only slept three hours last night.
0: Yeah, it is bizarre. And it, it it does seem like I don't think it's unique to lawyers, but it's definitely a lawyer thing and a law student thing.
1: Well, for our audience, maybe you can you can share some of your your insight in a way that's specifically tailored to them. Yeah. Uh, what are some mindfulness techniques or tips that we can employ in our, you know, in our work days to make the lawyering experience more sustainable more healthy maybe even more effective
0: yeah so i think one thing is to meditate right so i i put a lot of stress on that it's really useful to have a formal meditation Unintended. practice oh it was not intended <laughs> but haha um but you know i do put emphasis emphasis if you will on that because it's just super important it's going to transform your mind and allow your uh, and and produce a higher base level of mindfulness throughout the day. But that being said, I do think it's also important. Even by the way, even if that's five minutes, two minutes, one minute that you just set aside to quietly watch your breath or do whatever So it could be five
1: minutes in the whole day. Or how do you how do you build it in?
0: Well, there is. So so I'm just talking about formal practice right now. So, you know, every day, if you can just set aside a little time, maybe while you're still at home. it could be in your office too to just quietly do a formal meditation practice and that can really be any length of time so the only bad length of time is zero minutes (laughs) zero seconds anything more than that is is good consistency is more important than duration I always like to say so I would rather you meditate for two minutes a day every day than two hours a day
1: but only four days there are nowadays plenty of of apps and, and build ons to, you know, your Amazon Alexa or iPhone, Siri. You can ask for a meditation, two minute meditation, three minute meditation, five minute meditation.
0: Yep. There's more resources, more resources than there have ever been. But I also want to say that, yeah, in addition to formal practice, you want to find ways of integrating mindfulness into your daily life and into your workday. And I think what that means for a lawyer is you need to find a way to do this practice in bite-sized ways because sometimes all you're
1: talking my language because we we have things to do sometimes all you have
0: is 30 seconds between your last call and your next call right and so you got to be able to do this in 30 seconds you got to be able to do this in a minute so i try and teach practices like that so for instance i can't really do them justice if we're just going to you know briefly do it but you know this sort of breath meditation that classic breath practice is a totally portable practice. You could always just, wherever you are, tune into the att- the sensation of the breath at the nostrils and watch two breaths, three breaths, like a little micro hit of mindfulness,
1: right? Maybe right before you're about to walk into that meeting, take 30 seconds before you open the door. Exactly right. For yourself.
0: And then you know there's a practice called walking meditation, also sometimes called mindful walking. And very briefly, what you're doing is you're bringing your attention to the sensation of the sensation in the soles of your feet mm. as you walk. So while you're walking, you feel your foot lift off the floor, you feel it swing forward, you feel it regain really contact with the floor. So walking meditation is great because even though our profession is somewhat sedentary, we do walk from time to time,
1: right? So yeah, whether it's to the coffee uh, or, or to the bathroom, to or to a colleague's to office. The
0: yeah, exactly. And so those are opportunities where instead of ruminating, you can tune into that sensation and use that as an anchor to bring you into the present moment. Mindful walking is actually a very pleasant practice. It's really nice and grounding and stabilizing. Treating the breath practice as a portable practice and just watching the sensations of breathing for 20 seconds, 30 seconds, and then little bits of mindful walking. These are opportunities Mm. to sort of interweave mindfulness into your day.
1: We're sitting here in, in Soho in New York City walking is is a luxury that i am you know I, i'm lucky to have as a new yorker walking around yeah what about for our audience that's listening in commute heavy uh, areas mm. you know whether it's it's california or, or florida or new york or, or wherever in the country yeah are there techniques that you can use while you're driving or while you're on your daily commute
0: yes but you want to be careful there so for instance you don't want to laser focus in on your breath while you're driving because you should probably be paying attention to your driving. But it's possible to drive mindfully. And I'm sure that you've had the experience, uh, if you drive, of driving somewhere. And then when you arrive at your destination, you realize that you have no memory of the drive (laughs) How did I get here? Because you were just sort of daydreaming while you were driving. Listening
1: to an audio book or... Yeah.
0: Which is okay whatever it
1: was that you're doing
0: yeah and that's fine but it is possible to drive more mindfully and what that means is if you want to drive mindfully you don't want to use as narrow a focus as something like the breath or paying attention just to your foot on the gas pedal that's no good right driving is a complex process a multi-partite process and you have to be sort of paying attention holistically to the whole thing so what you do instead is you bring your attention to the overall process of driving, you know, not just your hand on the wheel, but also your foot on the gas, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, the whole experience, treat that as the anchor for your attention. And then there will be a tendency to drift off into daydreaming, into thoughts about what you're going to be doing when you get to where Hmm. you're going. So once again, all you do is just notice that your attention has wandered and then you know, without condemning yourself for that, because it's not any sort of a mistake, it's what's supposed to happen. You just notice that. And then return. And then bring yourself back. In this case, to this broader focus of the experience of driving. Because even though it's a broader focus, it still is being out of your head, right? So that is how you can drive mindfully.
1: That's great. It may even appeal to some of this, you know, misguided uh, multitasking brain that, that many lawyers have, which is, oh, maybe I can get something out of this this driving experience, or maybe I can get something out of this walking experience, uh, even if it's not uh, traditional multitasking.
0: No, that's a great way of looking at it. You can leverage more and more of your day in service of this very helpful mental training that will make you happier and make you more effective as a lawyer. So you're claiming as as you get better at these practices and as you remember to spend a little more time in a bit of breath practice here and there, a bit of mindful walking here and there, You are claiming more and more territory for this useful practice. There's this piece of advice that they like to give in the Tibetan meditative tradition, which is a very old, very sophisticated tradition. They like to say, short sessions, many times. And to me, so that's a very valid way to practice. And to me, that is a very viable way for a lawyer. to
1: So even if you can't sit down and meditate for half an hour, 45 minutes, if you can get in those one to two minute sessions, uh, multiple times throughout the day, you can have a very positive impact.
0: Short sessions, many times, absolutely. And you should never let the need to sort of be a hero and sit for a long length of time or practice for a long length of time to get in the way of your. Although maybe that could
1: be a a better uh, thing for law students to brag about how long they meditated. Yeah, you rather gotta brag about something. <laughs> how few hours they slept. Yeah. Are there any techniques that you would recommend? Uh, you know, break in case of emergency if if you get really terrible news or um something doesn't go your way or um the judge uh, makes a mistake and you're 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 suffering the punishment of it yeah actually
0: you want to if you can avoid unhelpful extremes that tend to happen in moments of acute stress or anxiety so one extreme is you're going to flinch away from the experience that's happening so what's going to happen is in your body you're going to feel a bunch of stuff right you're going to feel that clench in your stomach or you're going to feel your heart pounding there's going to be a physiological response and the tendency is to fight that response to try and make it go away somehow to push it down to push it out to distract yourself from it we engage in what's called avoidance strategies
1: and that to force that that poker face or to force the outward calm and not just to force the outward calm but for
0: your own sake because it's unpleasant Mm. it's unpleasant to feel that way and we naturally try to escape unpleasant experiences. So
1: it's more like I'm just closing that door and not going to think about it.
0: So we have a couple different ways of doing it. One way is that distract yourself. Try not to think about it. Another way might be to dull yourself, right? Have a glass of wine or something or have a Mm. beer. Uh, Another one is to actually ruminate, right? And so that's the other unhelpful extreme. So one thing that we tend to do is we flinch away from the sometimes unpleasant experience in our bodies that happens when stress or anxiety comes up. The other unhelpful extreme is that we tend to dive into our thoughts i can't our believe mental he did that. why did
1: he why did he do that why, why did this happen exactly. what could i have done differently if i
0: just said this instead of that it's so natural to sort of replay this stuff on a loop and ruminate and so what you want to do the the way to sort of short circuit and avoid those two unhelpful extremes is to deliberately tune into the experience you're having in your body now this seems counterintuitive because well John, you just said that you're having a very unpleasant experience in your body right now. But it turns out that the unpleasantness is actually not so bad. What really makes these experiences so awful sometimes, the stress, the anxiety, is the avoidance, Hmm. is the way that we flinch from it.
1: So do you actually think, how is this making me feel right now?
0: Yeah. So what you could do is you could just say, okay, I feel myself getting stressed. What sensations do I notice in my body right now? This is not a natural thing to do. Mm. You have to train yourself in this response. Okay, there's a a sort of tightness in my stomach. My hands are tingling. My face is hot. You pay attention to the sensations. And then if you start to get caught up in a thought, you notice that you're caught up in the story, then just like in meditation, you gently escort yourself back to the experience of what's going on in my body right now. Mm. So stay with the body. If you do that, you're not flinching away you're also not diving into the stories and ruminating. And one thing that helps with that, if you that can be a little bit of a support to doing that is what you might call a labeling practice. So what you do is you just sort of sit there or stand there or be wherever you are while you're going through this stressful experience. And whenever you notice a sensation in your body, label it feeling. Mm. In your head, say the word feeling. Whenever a thought comes up, and you notice that thought label it thinking hmm. so in so what happens is an anxious thought comes up a stressed out thought comes up instead of falling into the story and starting to ruminate you label it thinking right and so you Think don't do
1: that and return back to feeling
0: and then and then if you if um if an uncomfortable sensation in your body comes up those butterflies in your stomach that pounding heart instead of flinching away from it you just label it feeling right so you could actually you could stay with the body as an anchor, or you can just sit there and just whatever comes up, feeling or thought, just tag it, tag it, tag it, feeling,
1: feeling, thinking, feeling. So, is this something that you would do kind of after you've left the room, or can you do this in real time, and and keep up keep up to speed with what whatever practice you're engaged in?
0: Yeah. So, there are a couple of ways of doing of doing it. I would say that. Labeling might be tough when you're in the midst of it, but if you but you can ground your attention a little more in your body. So if you notice you're starting to freak out, you can't stop listening to what's being said, right? If you're engaged in a negotiation or a conversation uh, or oral argument or whatever the case yeah. may be, you can't tune out to what's going on. So you can just shift a little bit more, a greater percentage of your attention to your body as a way to ground you, because you are probably even while you're engaging with whoever you're talking to, whoever's on the other side of the table, you are unconsciously flinching away from the somatic physical experience, and you might be unconsciously starting to engage some thoughts. So it is useful to give a little bit more attention to ground you in the body to help avoid those extremes, even while you're in the midst of a demanding cognitive activity like a conversation. But you have to modulate it based on the situation. Based
1: you're in, on worse Based on the ability that you can have to step back.
0: There's a there's a thing that I call the mindful mini pause, which is specifically for if you're getting a little stressed or anxious and you're in a conversation or you're on a call. Tell me, what's and the mini pause? So it's very quick. You take one breath. So you slow your breathing a tiny bit. So you take an inhale. You you obviously are not in a position to sort of do while someone is staring at you <laughs> or while you're on a call. So you just slow it a little bit, right? Just maybe when you're
1: on a call, maybe, maybe while you're on a call.
0: But you, yeah, you, as long as
1: it's no video.
0: Yeah. As long as you keep it quiet. But you just slow your breathing a little bit on the inhale and then on the exhale, give a little attention to your body. That's it on the inhale. Slow it down a little bit on the exhale. Give a little bit of attention to the sensations that you're noticing in your body. If it's just mundane sensations like your butt on the chair or coolness or heat or the touch of your clothing, that's fine. If it's something that seems related to stress or anxiety, like a knot in your stomach yeah. or tingling in your hands, those are also good to pay attention to because those are the ones we tend to flinch away from. So slow your breathing a little bit on the in, tune into your body a little bit on the out. That's See where a mindful you are and
1: then, and then go forward.
0: That's a mindful mini pause.
1: You mentioned a couple of other perhaps traditional responses to stress. Uh, one is turning to alcohol is having a drink and using that as a way to kind of clear your mind a little bit. What are your thoughts and how does that relate to mindfulness?
0: Well, my thoughts are that our profession is going through something of a, I don't want to say an epidemic, but we're having an issue right? and maybe have have been having an issue for a really long time. So there was that 2016 study by the Hazleton Betty Ford Foundation that found, I think, depending on which Statistical measurement you want to use, somewhere between a fifth and a third of lawyers too many. To be properly classified as problem drinkers. So I think this is a real issue. And I and now, you know, of course, alcoholism is a disease, and I wouldn't just say, oh, just practice mindfulness. But I do find that mindfulness practice seems to help curb to some degree compulsive behavior. And there is research. There's a a guy named Judson Brewer. uh, I think he's a neuroscientist at Yale. And he's looking into how mindfulness can interact with efforts around smoking cessation and cessation Mm. of other addictive behaviors.
1: Physically addictive. Yeah,
0: so there's a real intersection there. And some of the things that drive us to dull our experience is a desire to escape from unpleasant experience, from discomfort. Right. And there's a sense in which every second of our lives, we are chasing pleasant experiences, fleeing unpleasant experiences. Right. This is the ever present sting of the human condition (laughs) and mindfulness. And, you know, the the sort of uh, practices, you know, under this broad umbrella that we're calling mindfulness practice. What they're really aimed at above everything else is not being a little more focused, not being a little less stressed, those are beneficial side effects. The real heart of the practice is about finding a different way to exist as a human being besides just forever chasing pleasant experiences, forever fleeing unpleasant experiences and hurting ourselves and others. So maybe
1: living a more enlightened life is the big picture, but for many of us, some of these side effects could be goals in and of themselves. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I'd like to be less stressed. I'd like to have lower blood pressure. I'd like to respond in a more thoughtful way to the stimulus around yeah. me.
0: And, those are, and also the reduced stress, the reduced anxiety, all those things are manifestations of this broader idea, right? Because as I was discussing, as we were discussing, why, do, how do we feed our anxiety? It's because anxiety comes up, it's uncomfortable, and then we fight it, we flee from it, and that makes it worse, right? We so try
1: to dominate it.
0: Yeah. Or avoid it. And that's exactly what I'm talking about here. So mindfulness is trying to introduce you to this idea of, well, when something unpleasant comes up, what happens if you just enfold it in mindful awareness? What happens? Well, mm. it turns out what happens is it takes a ton of the sting out of it.
1: It deflates the actual stressor.
0: Yeah. Or or when you're in when you're having a good experience, instead of gripping onto it, like for instance, if you're enjoying a drink, instead of clinging to that experience and needing more, right, what would happen if you were to just enfold that in mindful awareness? Well, it turns out that you can enjoy it, but without that compulsiveness, Hmm. right? So it's not in any way an escape from, you know, the vicissitudes of life. It's a way to be with them in a more skillful way. So there's a a quote that I I really like. I can't remember if it's from Jon Kabat-Zinn or Jack Kornfield, but it's from some eminent, one of those two eminent mindfulness teachers. He said something like, you can't stop the waves from coming, but you can learn to surf. And that's really what it's about.
1: Well, that's beautiful. So before you go, maybe you could opine, maybe you could could speak to the legal profession uh, in ways that we can improve or have better mindfulness. I guess why don't we start with what are you what do you see out there as innovative or or helpful and then we can talk about um, other ideas that you may have.
0: Yeah. So what I'm starting to see more and what I want to see more of is more of a holistic approach to employee well-being. And I don't mean holistic in the sort of incense and crystals sense. I mean more in the sense of addressing all the different facets of Lawyer well being and how the work that we do can impact that. You know, there are so many different dimensions of well being. There's your physical well being and your physical fitness. There's your emotional well being. There's people are even talking about financial well being and how that is tied into, you know, if you're having issues there, right? Or if you're struggling, then that's going to affect everything else about, you know, how you're able to live your life, uh, social well being, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, firms are starting to look at things like, you know, do we have alcohol at all of our events and mixers and recruiting events and, and retreats and so forth? You know, how can we encourage physical fitness? Yeah. How can we encourage mindfulness practice? And I do think that you want to look across the board at all the different dimensions. So, you know, I'm the mindfulness guy. But if you're just hiring me, having me come in and do a mindfulness workshop, and then you feel like, oh, we got the wellness well being thing covered. That's not enough. It really isn't. Maybe I'm speaking against my own interest here, but I really believe that, you know, you have to look at all these different dimensions. And so the ABA, the American Bar Association, has done some good work here. There's an attorney well-being committee that I actually participate in that is making available tons of resources, including online, about what the different dimensions of well-being are and dozens of different ideas for how law firms and other organizations can be more comprehensive in addressing these things.
1: Are you optimistic? Do you see the small benefits of adding a little bit more mindfulness into a profession as significant? Or are we we on the precipice of a a different type of Mm -hmm. pandemic that we were discussing with uh, problem drinking when it comes to problem stressing?
0: I am optimistic because over the years that I've been doing this, I have seen changes. So I've seen it come, I've seen it shift from more of a check the box mentality of sort of, you know, bring in a well-being speaker. And now we've done our part to much more comprehensive programs. And that shift has really been remarkable to see the the ABA created a well-being pledge. And obviously just signing a pledge means nothing unless you actually do it. But more and more law firms and other legal employers are signing that pledge. And as far as I can see, actually doing stuff which matters, you know, lawyers to bill time spent doing mindfulness practice. That's a
1: concrete step. I yeah, mean, that, because the lawyers are feeling the pressure to take care of their they're billing enough. They're accounting for their time.
0: Yeah, I was blown away actually. And it was, you know, there was a cap on how many hours you could bill, but it was a pretty I don't remember the exact number, but it was a pretty healthy number. I was really impressed by that. There's a firm that has, you know, this is on a completely different axis of well being, but it's kind of interesting. There was a firm that had ergonomics experts come to every office and set it up so that you're not getting lower back pain and things like that. Oh, that's um, helpful. Yes. Though also not being in that chair for 15 hours a day would also be nice. Yeah, I mean, we do is, what we can.
1: is it possible to live a balanced life and bill 50, 70 hours a week?
0: I don't think you can go on like that indefinitely. I don't think you could have week after week like that. It's tricky for me because I can only do what I can, what I can do, right? As someone who goes in and teaches what I know how to teach. But I really, really do want to see large systemic changes at law firms. And I do want to stress that it's a bandaid on a bullet wound to just bring in a speaker every now and then. The profession needs to shoulder some of this responsibility. And I think and hope that it is.
1: I think as we're becoming more and more aware of the role that stress plays in our lives, uh, inevitably uh, techniques and strategies to to deal with it will also become more and more prevalent. Yeah. And and that's why you know some of what you're doing is so important. Uh, John Krupp, thank you for joining us today and sharing your insights. Thank you for having me. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksonLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksonLaw.com podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.